0: One Life Lives, the power of people.
1: My favourite word is Metropole, which for those of you who don't know is unique for a lunatic or crazy person. A desire to succeed and provide David's goal to normal business is absolute honesty. Living by last major, sure the customer is always right, even if they are wrong. Today we are situated at one of Galliard's home's developments called The Stage, parallel to Shoreditch High Street. We couldn't get much closer to this metropolis, even if we tried. Welcome David. Thank you. I understand East London is where you grew up, surely this must feel like home to you.
0: It feels like coming home, yes, it's, uh, it's, it, it's just, I now live in Essex which is not very far from East London and it seems to be the place where people travel to, they either leave, they leave East London or they leave the East End and they go to Essex or they go to North West London. We chose Essex which is a good place to
1: be. <laughs> and why did you choose Essex?
0: Um, it's incredibly close to here, and I think people have got a misconception about how close it is to central London, so Essex transport-wise is very, very close. My family moved out there when we were about nine or ten, so it's kind of where I've always been. I have, I have in my early formative years, lived kind of wherever Stephen Conway told me there was a deal and I had to buy this flat.
1: And what was life like growing up in East London?
0: Uh, Very different to today. I mean, I know uh, once you reach a certain age, you always hanker for the good old days, but um, I think the world's just changed massively. You did genuinely, you were able to genuinely play out on the street till 10 o'clock at night, uh, and you just can't do that anywhere now, or you can't do that safely, I don't think, anywhere now. I certainly wouldn't let my kids be out that late at night on their own in the street.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And do you have fond memories of the East End? I mean, obviously it's changed dramatically. I think it's
0: changed dramatically, but... The community that I'm a part of has kind of transported its East End roots into the area that I now am. So I've got close friendships with people that are that are based on, on, a, on a local community bond, I suppose, which is what the East End had.
1: Yeah, it's definitely got a lot of heritage. So I was listening to your music selection, um, your first choice, Lady Day by Frank Sinatra. Tell us why you chose this and uh, why it resonates with you.
0: It's a real classic ballad but funnily enough it's not one of his most famous songs it's not a song that would readily come to mind um it's my dad's favorite song my dad passed away only about 18 months ago now so it kind of still lives on from that point of view i um even though i'm only in my early 50s i could listen to frank sinatra all day long i think i think my wife would let me well, Lady day could use some love, some sunshine. Lady Day has too much rain For Lady Day
1: could you Some spring, some breeze So that was Lady Day by Frank Sinatra. You seem to have really admired your father, um, especially his work and family. And why, why is this?
0: I think he was one of those old-fashioned people that taught us um, family values and taught us that the honesty in everything in life is the best policy and at the end of the day his mantra was always if I can't have as long as the children can have then that's fine he was kind of one of those that would suggest he was going without in a, in, 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 in helping his kids and so on and, and I tried to take that, uh, that that mantra on.
1: Yeah, So quite selfless really in a way?
0: Oh very much so yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah. was never about him.
1: And do you feel you followed in his footsteps?
0: Uh, I'd like to think I've followed in his footsteps family-wise, um, albeit I've had twice as many kids as him and I've been divorced and I've got married again and had more kids. Um, um, but in terms of carrying on family traditions and stuff, yeah, I definitely would like to say I've followed in his footsteps. Uh, business-wise, slightly different. He would have been more cautious than me, shall we say.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and I guess part of business is being a bit of a risk-taker as well, isn't it?
0: I think it's also about being optimistic as much as anything else, so... Um, if, I, if I agree 50 sales, as far as I'm concerned, 48 of those are going to go through. If my father would have agreed 50 sales, he would assume 25 of them would fall through. So there's that just, there's just, just optimism, which I think is very important.
1: The glass is half full, not half empty. That's nice. So you've been working with Stephen Conway for over 30 years now, and you say you aspire to him. Out, you know, Why is that? Sounds a really interesting story.
0: Stephen uh, was the youngest ever financial director of a bank at the age of 21. Um, he's, a, he's a numerate genius, which I could never get close to. I, mean, I'm, I would suggest in comparison, I'm rubbish at numbers, albeit I can always work out what 2% of something is. Um, he's, just, um, he, he's a workaholic, a dealaholic. Um, you could just learn so much just by being in a meeting with him for half an hour. Um, and that's what I've done for for 30 years now.
1: And um, how did you meet Stephen and how did you start working together?
0: My second job, I had a job for, um, I had a first job in estate agency for six months where I was the office junior making tea, coffee, glass of sherry for the boss in the afternoon. um, It seems like years ago and then my second job was with a company called Conway Collet. Stephen Conway was the silent partner in estate agents and I've been in and around him ever since.
1: So moving on to your second song choice, uh, Four Seasons by Vivaldi, why have you chosen this classic? I couldn't
0: name many, many classic tunes, um, but it's something that I can't remember who it was that may well have played it to me many, many years ago. I remember once driving in the car with it on and actually getting stopped by the police, and when, the, when I wound down my window to face the wrath of the police for whatever I was doing, maybe no seatbelt or something, the policeman said to me, ah, we've held you four seasons. You're obviously a nice chap and he let me off. So it's kind of stuck with me from then forever.
1: that was Four Seasons uh, by Vivaldi. So you've been in property since you were 18. Where did you start?
0: So I worked for a company in Ilford. I got the yellow pages after leaving school and started ringing around estate agents having no clue what I wanted to do or what I was capable of doing and got a job as an office junior with a company called B Bailey & Co who are in Ilford High Road. They're still there today. Um, and I worked for the the boss then was a chap called uh, Ben Gumby he was old then, and it was him that I had to make the sherry for every afternoon. It was really, really going back in time. They were allow- I was allowed to make tea for everyone in the morning, coffee in the afternoon, and a sherry for the boss. I learnt proper junior stuff. We didn't have a photocopier. We used to use a gestetner machine and all of that kind of thing. I was only there six months. Um, bizarrely enough, um, his son... He obviously passed away, old man, Gumby. His son runs the business today, he is a qualified surveyor and I occasionally see him socially which is a little bit bizarre that I used to work for his dad.
1: Wow. And then obviously you've met Stephen and sort of the rest is history really. Uh,
0: yeah, an interesting history. We had, um, um, I worked for Stephen's, he was the silent partner in that estate agent so I was there for a couple of years, learnt an awful lot. Then I left with the then manager of that office. And we set up a business with Stephen Conway, which was an estate agent called Collins & Co. We made a very early foray into Docklands in the uh, early 1980s when nobody was around there. And we had one of the very first estate agencies down there, which which did okay back then.
1: Interesting. So what does uh, Galliard Homes strive for as a company every day?
0: Um, My part of Galliard Homes tries to make sure that we sell something every day. we are a property developer that currently has something like 7,000 units under construction with our own construction arm, our own planning arm, our own accountancy arm, it's, it's a huge company now but we we there's a part of the company that is still run like a small family business. So I've been with Stephen forever. My sales meetings with him are a five minute phone call every single day. What you sold, what you're going to sell. What's the plan for this week? And it literally is as much as that. Of course, there are many things that are planned ahead, and we have sales launches of new product and so on, but we're always trying something new. And I think I think what, where we would differ from a, another developer or a house builder is that we'll always try and be inventive, um, and we've got great flexibility. We hold traditional family values within the business. That's towards our staff, uh, but also towards our clientele
1: good and it's really interesting that keeping that sort of that family value within the business and you reckon that's one of the keys to having a successful business generally and why you've probably you know succeeded so much over the years I,
0: th- I think continuity is what is what comes as part of that and the fact that certain certain people within the business feel like even if they're not a stakeholder they feel like they're a stakeholder and they work like they're a stakeholder the vast majority of my sales team which are not trained, don't come from a property background, we take them from anywhere and everywhere if we like the look and the sound of them and, and the fact that they're hungry. They, most of them will work whenever we ask them to, do whatever we ask them to do on the basis that they feel they're a stakeholder within the business. They get very well rewarded when they sell, um, but that's only natural.
1: Of course, it's, and if people feel like that within the business, you're going to get a lot more out of them, loyalty trustworthy and um so you mentioned you know you take on people if you like the look of them and you know in the sense that obviously you have a good feeling about them um do you think it comes down to like who you know not to say what you know
0: unfortunately virtually everything in life comes down to who you know um to an extent that's not to suggest that someone that hasn't um, Gone and got the correct qualifications for whatever it is what they want to do. Aren't going to be able to do well on their own merits. But in this kind of business, it definitely helps as to who you know. But it, but you, I think our view has always been: if we take on um, kids who have been, who we know their fathers or their or their family and so on and so forth, and they're looking to get in the business, they're less likely to let us down. Or if they let us down, it's not going to be on purpose. It's going to be a mistake or and what have you. There, they are there to learn. In the main, um, you're always going to get the odd, you know, the odd one that that, that that goes wrong. But we tend to do very well that way.
1: Okay, interesting. So the public see these mighty towering blocks um, that are being built, you know, day in, day out now. So, um, and um, but give us some insight to what a typical sales process looks like, and the, what goes into the creating and the development to get a finished result.
0: So all us developers are a bit weird. We all go and copy each other. We all go and look at everybody else's show flats and, uh, and and try and everyone to keep up with the latest trends and the latest fashions and so on. But I suppose we get involved at, at sales level in the specification. We get involved in the sizes of the units. We, we look at the plans um, to, to see whether they're the kind of flats we believe our buyers are going to desire. So the architects will get a blank piece of paper, they'll draw up a scheme. But before before we go to construction and go to sales, it will pass through the sales department in some way, shape or form to see whether it's the right kind of product for the market. And of course, the market changes at any one time. When when it's buoyant and booming, there's a huge desire for for lots of small units. When it gets a little bit tougher, you'll find there's a desire for sort of uh, larger units bigger one beds bigger two beds and so on so it, it kind of just depends on market conditions at any time
1: and obviously the market is constantly changing um, so do you feel that there's a particular recession proof model um, that you follow or you really are reactive to the market at any current time
0: I think again that's somewhere where we as a company are very different to the house builders we're not we're not the kind of company to land bank and sit on land we are a developer and everything we've got, we want to be developing at, at, at that moment in time. I don't think anything's recession proof. What we've managed to do over the past 20 odd years is find, sometimes by luck, sometimes by judgement, the next regeneration area, the next area that's going to, to have a natural increase in value, which means that if you're getting in at the bottom, you have the ability, you, you have the opportunity to be able to go and sell those properties Leave enough in for the purchaser to, by the time they come to complete, to have something that they might have paid a hundred thousand pound for that suddenly is worth one twenty, one thirty, whatever. It's so leave leaving that carrot in at all time is is really handy, and that gives you a good relationship with your buyers going forward.
1: Yeah, of course. So when you're looking at new areas to regenerate and um, land to build on, what what are you looking for? What are the key sort of aspects to be able to develop? So in
0: and around London, it's it's traditionally been, if you can find an area that actually you look at it and you think, well, the transport's way better than they're saying. The infrastructure is improving all the time. You can see there's a local government or there's a central government project that's going on to improve the area. An area that's previously been run down. We're sitting here now in Shoreditch. My grandparents couldn't wait to get out of here. It was the slum of London. It's now retailing sales values at anywhere from fifteen hundred to two thousand pounds a square foot for some of these gleaming towers but it's a real cool funky location so it's about finding those areas shoreditch is, is probably overplayed for someone to come in and, and, and make quick money so they've crept down to Dalston and so on and that's that's kind of so it's finding that, ne- that, that next area
1: and across London do you feel that East London is sort of quite special compared to others in terms of development or is it on par with sort of say West London, Marylebone, Mayfair,
0: etc. It's not going to be on a par with those kind of locations. They're uh, incredibly expensive and sought after. Um, East London holds a special place in the heart for me. It's where I was born and grew up, and I've always felt that it's been an undervalued area. Um, you ask me why I live in Essex. Parts of Essex are incredibly undervalued, um, and the transport facilities are way better. We we, we live in Buckhurst Hill. We're on top of the train station. Um, if we're going out to town on a Saturday night, which is not that often, but if we do, we'll go by tube. Yeah. We, you know, we don't want to hassle a parking, we want to have a drink maybe, so we'll jump on the tube and it's so easy and it's no no time, no distance. And I think people have got to start to look at that and to, to realise that these areas are are undervalued. Yeah.
1: So, plenty more scope for development then. <laughs> uh, moving on to your third song, uh, Col Nedre, and why have you chosen this? Why does this resonate with you? Um,
0: I'm not a particularly religious person but I'm a traditionalist uh, in terms of religion and I'm involved with the community in terms of my local synagogue. Um, I think even the most lapsed Jewish person, if you were to ask them what religious song resonates with them, they would all say this because they're going to be there on that on that evening listening to it, and it's simple as that.
1: Was Colin Nadre. I was looking at the Galliard prolific portfolio, including Park Plaza Hotel, Drayton Park by the Arsenal Stadium, current projects uh, Bowling Ground, uh, Football Stadium, and the stage where we sit today. What has been your most successful development to date?
0: Wow. Um, it's a tough one to call because they've all been successful in their own right. I suppose on a personal level, oh, I would look at the development that we did at New Capital Key in Greenwich, which um, almost half of it we had to sell twice because the recession hit in the middle of the, the process. We had 650 private apartments on a Riverside location, It's a fantastic opportunity. We brought that to the market off plan to sell and we did it at the Millennium Hotel in Grosvenor Square, two weeks after the run on Northern Rock when no one really knew what that meant, no one really understood what was going on in the financial markets. We had them queuing from Friday night till Sunday night around the block still purchasing our flats and we sold 400 flats including some pre-sales and in the entire weekend it was was unprecedented and we achieved really good values for a Riverside location. Unfortunately, the development had to be mothballed for a while because funding dried up. Um, We then managed to get back on site and built the scheme out, and began to sell the rest of the flats. And the market was in a state of flux at the time. No one knew where it was going. But we just felt that this was a special location, and it was a great scheme. It had an awful lot to offer. Uh, And again, it was kind of undervalued. You could be paying 500,000 pounds for a one bedroom at Tower Bridge, and you could pay 250,000 pounds for a one bedroom on the river with the same view, down the road in Greenwich and it just didn't seem it just looked wrong that so and and we, we were proved right that it that it, that it did turn out well in the end um, but it was a as I say it was a scheme that we had to sell twice we had to reinvent ourselves and and bring it back to the market a number of people were unfortunate and were unable to complete to be fair we managed to get most of them over the line and I'm glad we did because we were happy that they were able to complete and they did really well out of it in the end
1: Interesting. And why do you think that? I mean, that's a great feat that you were still selling in the market. I remember, I remember Northern Rock, It was, it was not good. But um, wh- why do you think that people saw it? Do you think it was the area, or do you think, you know, it's down to you as a company?
0: I'd love to say it was us as a company, but we'd be accused of being a little bit uh, cocky, I suppose. I don't think so. I think the area was, was again, an underrated, undervalued area. You know, we we came in and out of Greenwich. We we tend to do this. We sort of come into an area. Do two or three schemes, maybe four schemes, and then everybody else comes in. We leave it to them and we disappear off. Um, and that's kind of happened in Greenwich. Um, we're we we're, we're proud of what we achieve. And if you go and look at the development, it's a really really good high quality scheme.
1: And in terms of obviously you know that not just that development but others, do you feel that it's a gut feeling when you're working on it? You know you might have to make changes during the process. Do you, do you work on sort of gut feeling when building these things?
0: Very much so, um, and I think we're very much of that of that ilk. You know, Stephen Conway still goes around and looks at every single scheme as often as he possibly can. Um, he is a, as well as a workaholic, and he won't mind me saying this. He's a masticaholic. Um, if he sees a little bit of mastic that's a little bit too fat and a bit grubby in a bathroom, um, I wouldn't suggest they'll be screaming and shouting, but the construction side will know that that we're not happy with it. So we've now become experts at. Uh, checking the quality and part of that quality is maybe just i don't know there's just certain things that that you look at that you feel that's not right and we, and we need to change it we will and because we're a, a builder developer ourselves we do have that ability that which will wind construction up but it's unfortunate it's an ability that, that we've got if we're in the middle of a development and we suddenly think market's changed and also that flat doesn't look right we'll go in and we'll change it which if you're using a main contractor you just can't do it
1: And would you say it's almost being part of a perfectionist?
0: Uh, We try to be. Yeah, we try to be a perfectionist as much as we can, definitely. Tell
1: me, what excites you about working at Galliard Homes?
0: Still, still get a buzz when it comes to those sales launches. We've definitely always been the market leaders uh, in creating an atmosphere where we can can manage to get a lot of people to come and queue up and buy our property, usually because they know that uh, they're buying it early enough that they're going to see a... uh, a decent rise in value in a normal market. Um, so yeah, I still get that buzz when uh, when you open the doors and you say, right, let them in, let them buy, and uh, it's good fun.
1: You can't buy that, can you? No, definitely not. And um, there's obviously been a lot of changes throughout the property industry, especially sort of in the past sort of eighteen months, two years. Where do you really feel the future of the property industry lies?
0: I think there's going to be uh, a huge resurgence in the uh, in the in the in the large scale. Buy to let. It's you know everyone knows that you've got these giant American corporations coming in to uh, purchase whole schemes to PRS the private rental sector, Uh, and I think that's going to uh, going to increase massively. But I I still think that the good old fashioned buy yourself two or three flats as a buy to let option instead of your pension is is going to continue as long as we can keep the lenders on side and the banks on side in terms of how they're going to value things.
1: Who are your buyers now? Is it um, investors that are looking at sort of pension things, or is it young individuals that want to get on the property ladder?
0: So help to buy has massively helped the government's initiative, uh, where they are becoming partners with. Um, probably eventually it will be hundreds of thousands of purchasers. They'll be partners with them in owning twenty percent of of their properties. That's helped massively in that up to six hundred thousand pound price range. So we are seeing a lot more first time buyers coming out of the woodwork. Um, fortunately, in the areas that we have in, we've, we've seen a lot of people that are able to borrow from family and have their funds available from uh, from uh, bank of mum and dad, as yeah. we all call it. Um, the investors are still there. They're certainly still there for the small units that they can buy one or two, tuck them away, rent them from ever. If they're going to take the long game, there is no doubt that property has always seen a rise over the long term.
1: And your full song, the ever-famous West Ham song, oh blowing bubbles, uh, doesn't need much explaining, but why does this resonate with you?
0: Um, every West Ham fan will tell you that there's there's never anything better than standing, sitting, standing in, in, in what, what was our old ground, which we bought, which I've got a lot of stick from my friends for, um, hearing bubbles sung by 35,000 people. I mean, it would be the same if you were an Arsenal fan for the Arsenal song and the Spurs fan. It just, it, it can... Uh, it can send a tingle down your spine I suppose.
1: That was the ever famous West Ham song, "I'm forever blowing bubbles." Clearly a passionate Hammers fan. When was one of your most precious football moments?
0: Um, I was actually my, my little boy, who's six, who I poor chap, I've indoctrinated him into being a West Ham fan. He's got he's got that to live 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 with forever. I was telling him the other night actually that probably, probably, and this is how sad it is being a West Ham fan, going back to. when we beat Arsenal in the cup final at Wembley it's a long time ago since we had success
1: so um I just want to touch on the sales idea I read a book once called to sell is human and it really emphasized the fact that we're always sending ourselves through life do you think that um sales people are born or do you think it's you you know you're born with something in you that you're good at or do you think you can work at it
0: now I don't think I think I think you're born I think you're born to sell at the end of the day Um, I always say to people that the only things you need to to have to be a good salesperson is you need to have a decent personality you need to be able to get empathy and with 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 the client stroke purchase that you're dealing with you need to have an incredible product knowledge you need to be so knowledgeable about everything that you're selling Um, and a happy smiley face and be a nice person and there's not much more to it if it was difficult if it required any kind of degree of uh, intelligence, I don't think I'd be doing it.
1: <laughs> oh, I think it is, you yeah, know. People buy from people. Yeah, I guess you've got that. You've got that knack. From a sort of business perspective, do you think it's really important? Say, you know, if you're an individual run, there's lots of individuals running businesses nowadays, but they're not all salespeople. Do you think that's going to detriment their business?
0: I think they, yeah, they have to have a commercial, a commercial arm behind them. We, we've, we've. Um, got joint ventures with a number of various... We're known as the company that has more partners than John Lewis. We'll joint venture with anyone and everyone um, and we'll try and elevate their property with us branding it and so on. And um, there are sometimes occasions when you're you're with a property owner and you're developing their property and they've got an emotional tie to it but not a commercial tie to it, and they don't understand the commerciality of it sometimes. So yeah, I think it is important that, you know, even if you've got your own business, you need to have someone with a sales orientation, a sales, back, sales background uh, with you.
1: I guess um, part of being a salesperson is being really passionate and having that emotional element. So would you say it's finding the balance between having that emotional tie and... Um, attachment to what you're selling, as well as the commercial keeping your eye on the figures and keeping your I mean, eye on the money.
0: Definitely because sometimes you could you, you, your emotional tie could be because it's been in your family for a hundred years and therefore I'm not selling it for less than I think it's worth but what you think it's worth is not what the public thinks it's worth and at the end of the day everything has a price um, and you could continue to uh, you could continue to to overprice something because of your emotional tie to it so yeah there's a balance that's needed. If you take the owners of some football clubs at the moment, they're always on the market to be sold to the highest bidder. But the reality is, they probably always want 70 seventy million pound more than someone's ever going to prepare to pay for it. And it's that thing—it's it's it's getting the right balance.
1: So, lastly, your fifth song, Jerusalem. Why this song in particular?
0: Just think—it's just—it's a great song, isn't it? It's fantastic. If you're, uh, I mean, I, I'm you see I'm a sports fan, it's another one that, that, that has a sporting resonance. You you, you turn up at, at Lord for the first day of the test match and the whole crowd sing singing Jerusalem and it's being led by someone. The same at the rugby where they do it. I don't even understand rugby, although I might watch it occasionally. It's powerful. I, I, I like powerful music, I suppose, which you would get from everything I've put there.
1: I know, quite hypnotic as well, actually. Yes. Yeah. So that was the song Jerusalem. I know the individual you'd like to have dinner with would be uh, Menachem Begin, who was the Prime Minister of Israel.
0: One of the most controversial Prime Ministers of Israel. Um, I read, when we completed this document with with you, I was in the middle of reading a book, um, which unfortunately I don't get enough time to read during normal life, but when you're on holiday you, you get a chance to actually do a bit of reading. And it was a book called The Prime Ministers, which was written by someone that worked for every Prime Minister that Israel had ever had from 48 through to today. And this guy worked for all of them. And and I learnt stuff that I would never have believed true. And this man was like, he was unbelievable. He was incredible. He was a great statesman, even though he came across as as, as someone that was intransigent. Um, I, mean, I won't go into politics or anything like that, but I think he would just be a fascinating man to sit down with.
1: So, and just lastly, you're really passionate about your family. Do you find much time to have a good work-life balance, do you reckon?
0: Um, yeah, I think so. I don't watch telly, so I must do. I, I was with my pals last night playing play football on a Wednesday night, even at my ripe old age, and they were all discussing, they're all, they're all obviously my age, which is like mid-50s and even older, discussing the various programmes they're watching on Catch Up or this and that at the other moment. This series, that series, which has got like 24 episodes, <laughs> and I'm looking at them like lunatics. They went, yeah, but you've got young kids. You're knackered by the time they've gone to bed, which is true. Yeah, no, I try to, to do as much with them as I possibly can.